chapter 12, verse 1 yesterday, or last week, and we're, we're only going to be in one verse, verse 2, this week. Um, and there are two verses that are fairly well known by a lot of people. We're actually going to look at it in the NIV this morning because um, I think the translation there is a little bit better and maybe even more familiar to many of us, um, although we usually are in the ESV. So you can turn your Bible to Romans 12, verse 1, and we'll read that in just a second. Um, you know, when I was, um, when my wife Ellie and I, when we were um, putting our son's room together for the, you know, the first baby, uh, getting the room ready, the nesting stage, as they call it, we bought a, uh, an old dresser online, and uh, I, I was, this was a time in my life when I didn't really know how to do a lot of things the right way, it turns out. I made a lot of mistakes, um, and, uh, and I thought that we were buying this, like, really nice, really amazing, sort of, like, cool-looking antique dresser, and um, pretty much, and it needed a little bit of work, and I was like, hey, I can do that. You know, how hard is that, right? Um, I'm kind of a handy guy, I thought, and so I took it home and tried to kind of, like, fix it up, sand it a little bit, kind of make some things look nice, and I discovered that, really, um, the only thing that was true of this dresser was that it looked kind of nice. Uh, it wasn't, like, a really antique dresser. It wasn't like really a nice dresser. It just looked kind of nice. And the reason um, was because what I thought was like a solid dresser was actually veneer. Now, um, at the time, I didn't really know what veneer was. I didn't know it was a thing. Um, I didn't know that when you see a wood pattern on something and it looks too good to be true, it probably is. Because you're like, I don't know if it really grows that way. That's a pretty big board they got on there. Uh, well, there's a reason that it looks that way, and it's because it's not really solid wood. Um, if you're as uninitiated as I was, uh, then uh, you're like, what the heck is this? Veneer is just a thin layer of something that looks really nice, that usually is really nice, right on the very top. And you just lay it over any piece of junk, and that piece of junk looks great, right? This is why Ikea is in business, is because when you look at the product materials and description, it says everything from like eggshells to like leaves to like dirt to some kind of chemicals you don't understand, but all that really matters is it says uh, veneer, and you're like, okay, it'll look like wood, so that's fine, that's great, that's really all I care about, I just need furniture that looks like wood that I can actually afford, right? We started buying Ikea furniture after this experience with our son's dresser. I tried to sand it, I tried to do things to it, and I realized, like, I can't, there's nothing I can do to this because it's not really real solid wood underneath. There's only so much I can work with it. Um, veneer is an incredibly popular thing. We use veneers for a lot of types of things because you're, you know, it's not surprising that there is a, that if there's a way to, to take a, a very a thin layer that looks very nice and lay it over top of something and make that thing look a lot nicer than it really is, we're all for it, right? Uh, I learned pretty quickly that there wasn't much that I could do with this thing, and I've since tried to educate myself about the value of veneers. But veneers don't just come in wood. There's all kinds of veneers that we experience and we see around us. Um, there's all kinds of thin uh, uh, sort of ways that we can like lay something over the top of another thing to make it look better, but it's not actually real. If you spend any time on the internet, you know what I'm talking about. If you spend any time on social media, you may have had the very disappointing experience of realizing, wait a second, I think a lot of what I'm seeing is just a veneer. Just kind of something that looks nice over the surface of the same old junk that all the rest of us are dealing with in life. When Paul begins to explain to the church what it looks like to live the Christian life in chapter 12, verse 1, he kind of addresses 
the opposite of what most people would think of when they think of the Christian life. And what I mean by that is most people, when they think of what it means to be a religious person, to go to church and clean your act up, get your life better and make things nice, is to just take a thin, nice-looking layer of religion, uh, actions, habits, behaviors, disciplines, call it whatever you want, and to just lay it over the top of whatever you have going on in your life right now, and it'll just clean you up real nice. It'll look really good, right? This is how a lot of us think about what it looks like to actually uh, live as a Christian. I'm not saying that you're trying to do that or that we're trying to do it, but I think what I found is that most people's understanding of what it is to live as a Christian is to just do something like that. But Paul, um, when he begins talking to the church in Rome, very much paints a picture to them that what it is to live the Christian life is going to be radically different from just slapping a nice new coat of paint on something and calling it good. Starting in chapter 12, verse 1, what we looked at last week, he says this to the church, how they should respond to the good news of the gospel. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. What Paul means with this is exactly what he says Because God's mercy is so profoundly, transformationally powerful in our lives, the only way that we can naturally respond to what God has already done for us is to offer ourselves and really every part of ourselves. He's not saying to be perfect. It's talking about being comprehensive. He's saying that the only right way to respond to this is not to just slap some behaviors and some nice, uh, you know, new Christian clothing maybe on top of what's already there, and that's how you respond to the gospel. You offer every different aspect of your life, every area of my life, every part of my life, my job, my money, my relationships, my desires, my ambitions, even my own ideas of what it looks like to be a Christian. I lay all those things, I sacrifice and make them available to God and say they're yours. And this, says Paul, is an act of worship. Well, he goes on in verse 2, what we'll look at this week, and he answers probably a question that I know I had walking away from last week, which is, uh, how in the world do you do something like that? If I am so motivated because of how God's mercy, his, his rich mercy has met me anew every day in all of the mess of my life and the things that I do that God continues to meet me in each one of those places with his mercy, powerfully meeting me there and showing me his love and his grace. If I have been completely like, like blown away by that and I want to respond and you're telling me the only way to respond is to give every part of my life over to him, how in the world do I do something like that? And Paul begins in the next verse that we look at this morning to tell us, exactly how we start. The first steps, the initial steps, the important steps of what it looks like to begin doing this. And if you've been a Christian for a while, believe me, it applies to you as much as it would if you just became one today. He says this in verse 2, what we look at this morning. Paul says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, his pleasing, and his perfect will. Paul lays out the first steps. There's kind of three steps here that he lays out. 
to what it looks like for us to begin walking the Christian life, for us to begin sacrificing, giving ourselves over as a sacrifice to God. And he breaks it down in a way that we can actually comprehend and understand and see ourselves doing these things. The first one that he says is this. He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. That's the first step. So the first thing that we do, if we've been transformed and changed by the mercy and the grace of God, and we respond to that and how we want to live our lives from this point forward, the first thing that we do, says Paul, is we do not conform to the pattern of the world. The first thing we do is he says to us, you guys need to be aware that you're already engaged in a process of something that's happening to you. That you're not just starting with a blank canvas. You're not starting with a blank slate. You're not starting with an empty book and I get to write the first word. Something has already been happening in your life and in your world that is impacting you. And if you don't understand what's happening, then you will not understand how to move forward the right way. It will just be veneer over the top of what's going on in you right now. He says that people are being conformed to the pattern of the world. What Paul is describing is a world in which it seems like um, everyone is being made into a replica of something else, a duplicate of something else. It's almost as though he's describing a factory that's producing one type of thing over and over and over and over again. One of my favorite shows to watch on TV, sounds so lame, you're going to think it's so lame, one of my favorite shows to watch on TV is a show called How It's Made, mostly because I don't know how to make anything. And all it is, is factories making stuff. It's the most, like, I don't know why. I love it so much. I know you're like, that is so, that is so boring and sad. I can't believe that's what you watch. But it is. My kids walk in, they're just like, okay. And I'm walking out of the room right now. You're watching someone make a pot out of metal in a factory. What is going on? But I think about that when I think about this, because um, the way that they make things, oftentimes, the same thing again and again, is you start with a mold of something. A factory will start with a mold of the shape that they want to make. This factory makes jello molds, maybe. You're like, jello molds, oh man. I know we've got some of those in this church. Every time we have a potluck, there's like 15 different colors of jello. I love it. Always in a different mold. There's a million of them out there. There's as many jello molds as there are people in the world, I believe. And maybe the bun cake, right? The bun cake, the most valuable bun cake pan thing, the most valuable thing in your kitchen, maybe. Maybe you use bun cake pan for everything. I don't know. Just think of that shape. It starts with a shape, a mold, and it's specific. Then what they do is they take something like metal or something else, and they stamp it out of that, and they produce one after another of the exact same shape over and over again. And what Paul says, he says that the way the world we're living in works is that it is attempting to conform us to a pattern that it is determined we should all be conformed to. The world is trying to make you into something, and it's not very unique. It's trying to make you into something that is the same as everyone else had tried to make into before. He says, he says you're experiencing this, or the, or the temptation is very real for you to engage in this, and if you don't see it and understand it, then you're not going to understand what to do next. Our culture provides the shape. Our culture being where we live, the people that we're around, the time in which we live, our culture, which we are affected by and we are a part of. We don't get to just pretend like we're not affected by and standing outside of. Our culture uh, forms the shape, the mold, the pattern. and says, okay, now this is what you're going to be. This is what everyone's going to be. It says, here's what a person's life should look like. Here's what a person should look like. Here's what a woman should look like. It's very narrow, very specific, right? 
And if it changes, okay. Now this, this, nope, that's bad now. This is, this is what a woman should look like, right? This is what a man should look like. This is what a man should act like. This is what a person should be like. This is how a person should behave. This is the way that a family should function and should be. This is what vacation is supposed to look like. Look at that. Oh, man, that's not what my vacation looks like. Well, it should. Sorry. Feel bad about your vacation now. Enjoy. This is what summer is supposed to look like. This is what a good, loving family does. I mean, if we, you think you're not affected by this, think about any of the things that cause us to feel anxious, to cause us to feel worried that we're not living the kind of life that we should be living. What is it that's causing us to feel like there's a kind of life that we should be living? Most of the time, the way this mold works, the way this works is we want the thing without someone telling us that we should have it. We just switched from like only streaming back to TV with commercials. It's been a couple of years. Oh man, oh man. I was like, I forgot, I forgot how I'm supposed to be. Good, now I have commercials. Now I know in every aspect of my life how I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to do and all the money I'm supposed to spend. And my kids are like, why aren't we buying that? Why aren't we doing that? Why aren't we doing this? Dad, I thought that you understood how life was supposed to work and our life looks nothing like any of these people who are so happy with all this stuff. Our culture provides the shape, and because we live in the flesh, which is susceptible to temptation and sin as long as we live on this earth, in this fallen world, then our flesh and the world around us provides the pressure. It sort of wants to sort of form us into that mold and that shape. Pressure constantly to, to be something, to be something and do something and look a certain way. And you hear that and you go, no, not me. I don't want to be like everyone else. I don't want to be like anyone else. Or I don't want to be like the people that were before me. Oh, no, I don't. Or I definitely don't want to be like that group of people. I guarantee you right now, I don't want to be anything like that group of people. They don't want anything like I want. But here's the bad news, right? Sorry, it's bad news, maybe, to you, if you feel that way. You're not the only one who doesn't want to be like that group of people. There's a lot of people who don't want to be like that group of people. In fact, that group of people, they have a mold. And guess what? You're being pushed into it. They exist. It's not just one thing either that stays the same forever and ever. It changes. It's tricky. It's deceptive. It's sneaky. But it's happening. Paul sees it. He saw it. And we see it if we look hard today. The word that Paul uses here to be conformed to the world. I'm not even going to attempt to say this word, okay, because I have nothing to prove. You, you tell me how to say that word. Don't really do it. I'm not even going to try it. I'll just tell you this. It comes from a much easier word to say, schema, okay? There you go. That I can say, okay? The word that Paul uses for conformed and transformed are two words that are like the most complicated versions of these words. It's almost like he's making up his own version of the word that applies in this exact situation. But the word schema that, that conformed comes from, that he says don't be, is the outward form of a thing that varies from year to year. So what that means is like the leaves of a tree, right? Um, the clothes that you wear, right? There is, a, there is a version of you that changes constantly based on the situation you're in, based on the time of life, the season, the mood you're in, whatever's going on. That, uh, that is what he's saying is what this looks like. He's describing kind of like a chameleon. A chameleon, which is like an animal that it gets into surroundings and that it immediately begins to naturally blend in with the surroundings that it's, that it's in. So even if we think 
No, no, no. Uh, I don't want to be the way things were before. I want to be different. I want to be unique. I want to look different. What Paul points out is that this thing that we're not to be conformed to is constantly changing and adapting. Constantly. In fact, that's one of the reasons, that's one of the things that gives us the ability to see that there even is a mold, is that people care so much about a given thing at a given time, even though it changes so often. We live, um, we live in a world, we live in a culture at any point that is trying to conform us to a certain pattern. And that pattern doesn't necessarily say, that pattern doesn't necessarily say God isn't real. It doesn't necessarily say God isn't true. It doesn't necessarily say you can't believe in God, and God's not great. The pattern oftentimes says this very thing that is in many ways worse than the other. It says, yes, God's real. Yes, you can believe in him. But let's just keep everything in perspective. Let's not go nuts. Let's not go crazy, right? Every, uh, the well-balanced life is one that has many compartments and components to it. You have your job. You have your family. You have exercise. You have eating healthy, right? You have leisure, you know, save for retirement, God, your faith, just keep it right there. Let's not go nuts. And we often find that uh, because that's sort of the way that, that, that seems normal, the thing that seems normal, that many believers I talk to, many Christians I talk to, are kind of wondering often, why is it that uh, like the struggle isn't, I don't believe in God. I don't believe that he's real. It's that I don't really feel that God is present in my life. I don't really know that I'm experiencing God at all in the way that maybe I did at one point or that people talk about or that I read about in scripture. I don't know that God's really active in my life. I don't know what his will is. I, I don't really know that he's there when things get hard and I don't feel completely alone and abandoned. And much of the time, the reason that we feel that way is because of the fact that we have allowed ourselves to be conformed into this pattern, but this pattern says God can be a part of your life. It just needs to be a very reasonable, managed part of your life that's in proportion to everything else. Or God is only interested in helping all the other parts of your life. In fact, many of the people I talk with, that's more the way they see it. You can have all the different pieces and then God just makes each and every one of them better, and that's what he's there to do. So just worry about how he can do that. And don't worry about the rest of the stuff that God might do in a person's life. Paul is, uh, is encouraging um, the church in Rome. This church that he has great admiration for. He says to them several times in this letter, uh, you know, these are believers, most of them. They're, many, they're all believers. They're people who are professing Christians. He says, I've heard of your faith. I've heard of you. I, I, I admire it. I can't wait one day to come and meet you all in person because I've heard you're such a great church full of Christians. And it is to that group of people that Paul is saying, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. So the first step in this is that we have to be aware that there's something that is happening to us while we live in this world. And that we're not able to just say we're immune to it. We're completely unaffected by it. We're not touched by it. That we feel the same thing that others do as well. He goes on after this and he says, um, rather than being conformed to the pattern of this world, he says we should be instead transformed by the renewing of our mind. 
So conforming, the way that he describes it, is an outward thing. You change your appearance. You change kind of these aspects of yourself again and again and again as they change around you and you're told to change them. He says instead, what the Christian, the person living uh, the Christian life ought to seek to do is to be really genuinely transformed. And the word he uses for transformed, again, I'm not going to try to say this word. Look at that word. But it comes from the word morph or morphe, that one we know, that one we kind of get, right? To change the nature of a thing. Caterpillar, cocoon, butterfly. You can't go back, okay? That's the kind of transformation that Paul's talking about. Instead of this uh, surfacey, back and forth, all over the place, temporary thing. No, instead, the first real step of the Christian life in responding to God's mercy and grace to live it out is to seek to be transformed, he says, in the renewing of our minds. That's where it has to start. Transformation, he says, begins with information. That there is new data, there's new information that we need access to, and that without starting there, we will have nothing else but the mold that we're presented with the one that we feel pressured to fit into. We will really have nothing else. We will find ourselves confused. We will find ourselves not knowing which way is up. We certainly won't know what God's will is, what it is that he wants for us. And we'll feel like the Christian life is really just a big, huge mystery all the time. He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This process of transformation starts in your thoughts, in your head, in the things that you know and that you believe because you go back to again and again and they shape you. How do you do this? The first thing is you need a new source of truth. You need something that stands on a greater foundation than the shape and the mold and the pattern that you're being presented with at any given time in our culture, in our world. And this is what he's talking about. This is the new source of truth, the new information that transforms our mind. And it can be more difficult to actually look at this than it can be to look at the other voices that are still out there and outside of us. You may remember this, you may be too young to remember this, but um, in the year 2004, uh, there was a Ukrainian election and uh, the government was run at the time by a leader who was widely considered to be controlled by the Russian government. He was kind of like their puppet leader. Uh, and they, were, they had been installed. And not only was he in charge, Russia basically running their government, but um, he also, Russia sort of controlled this whole, this whole group, controlled all of, all of the media and the means of communication about how things went out to people. And so they had an election in 2004, and this candidate, whose last name was Yushchenko, he ran as sort of the people's reform candidate. He was the one who was going to actually uh, bring back the ability for the Ukrainian people to lead themselves. And yet, because uh, Russia sort of controlled everything, especially the media, then immediately they came out on the election night and began saying that, you know, it was very clear who won and it wasn't him. It was this Russian-backed uh, candidate, the same one that had been in power before. But there was a woman and this woman was a sign language interpreter, a translator. And uh, 
She was on one of the major uh, news channels uh, interpreting for people. And as the news was being reported falsely, as they were telling people something that had happened that hadn't happened, she chose instead to communicate through sign language to all the people that were watching who were deaf these words. She said, I am addressing all the deaf citizens of Ukraine. Don't believe what they say. They are lying. And I am ashamed to translate these lies. Yoshenko is our president. No one knew what she was saying in studio. They didn't know what she was saying. But people that were watching, who were deaf, began communicating with other people. And this eventually led to what we know of as the Orange Revolution, which brought a new election and brought Yashchenko into power and gave the Ukrainian people the ability to govern themselves. I love this and the image of this because this, to me, is a perfect image of what it looks like when you have the big picture, the one that's so loud and so clear all the time, telling you something that is just not true. The truth is to live in this world that has fallen, we are surrounded by stuff that just isn't true and real. Bad information, lies. And the word of God, the voice of God, the voice of truth is often this smaller window right there that is saying to us in the very same time. And we read it in the words of people like Paul. We read it in the words of people like Peter. We read it in the words of the people who wrote down what we have in scripture that God inspired. We read these people saying again and again to God's people, do not listen to the world. Do not listen to the culture around you. Do not listen to these things. But instead, instead, see the truth. This is the truth. Follow this. Be conformed, transformed around this thing. We must have a new, better truth as believers, but the challenge is that it gets drowned out so easily. I mean, when you really stop and think about the sheer amount of information and content that you consume on a given week, and then you think about how that could possibly compete with the truth that God reveals to us in his word. I mean, how can it, right? And this is why we may possess this great truth. We have it at our fingertips. We have it as we come together. And yet it can feel like maybe we don't. We still find ourselves confused. We still find ourselves wondering, what is God's will? What is it that we're supposed to do? How am I supposed to live? What is the direction forward? How am I supposed to navigate this life? What does it mean to be a Christian? What do I do in this situation? The first thing that we need is the new truth, and the second thing um, that we need is an ability to go back to that truth again and again. Again and again and again. You know, I would have said, you know, years ago that probably the overriding false truth that competes with God's truth is sort of this idea that we can't believe in anything or even talk about or care about anything that isn't scientifically proven through empirical evidence, through data of experimentation and, and reproduction of results. Um, I remember even as I was going through seminary, so much of what, uh, what, we, what we learned about how to communicate God's word was to communicate it to a culture that was really obsessed with this idea. And yet now I honestly don't think that that's the biggest voice 
that drowns out the truth of God. It is not, you know, science or, or you know, we can't trust or believe anything that is, uh, that is not, you know, provable empirically. No, it is our own hearts. I was recently reading something online. I'm totally ashamed to say this. It popped up and I clicked on it and it was something about some celebrities that got divorced. I honestly have no idea who they were. I have no idea who they were. I don't know what they're famous for. But it, I just really wanted to know why they got divorced because I was really, really sad to hear that they broke up. And, and, I, and I read it, and it said, uh, it was kind of a prepared statement, surprise, surprise, and the person said in the prepared statement, they said, um, you know, we continue to be friends and support each other as we separate and we continue on to pursue our best and most authentic selves. And I thought, that right there, that is the loudest voice. That is the loudest voice. I say this idea that, that happiness, which is the pursuit of my most authentic self, whatever that means, like, like, like I have got to figure out, I've got to figure out what my heart's cry and desire really is, the most who I am in the most fundamental way. And I have to find a way to do that and be that and express that in any way possible. It often makes many of us feel paralyzed by the fact that I don't know what that is. I don't know what that is. Nothing makes me feel that good. Nothing makes me feel that excited. I don't know what I'm passionate about or anything like that. All I know is that that's what I need in order to really be happy and have a life that is worth living. To become my most authentic self. I can say I know as many uh, marriages that have actually broken up over that pursuit in, in our modern day as I do about things like infidelity. Because as we pursue that, it often leads us away from another person's pursuit of theirs. How do I pursue my most authentic self and you pursue your most authentic self? How do we do what is most important? And we come in a marriage to a point of going, like, which one's it going to be, right? Well, if I am being molded into the pattern of the world, if I am believing this other truth that is presented to me constantly, and I'm listening to my own heart and going, I really do want these things for my life, and I thought maybe this person would make me a better version of myself. And it turns out I have to compromise my version of myself. And that's, I mean, I guess that's what I signed up for, but everybody knows that's not really what I wanted, so what's going on here? Not only do we need a source of truth that is more real, but we need to go back to it again and again. This is what Paul talks about when he says we're going to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. The way that we are transformed in our thinking, in our thoughts, is to continue to go back to a source of truth again and again and again and again. Because the other voices are so loud. Because the voice is within us, within our own hearts, as Scripture tells us, the heart can be deceptive above all things. That God's word guides us, his truth guides us, and gives us direction, and points us in where to go, and tells us what is good and what is true. But we have to go back to it again and again, because of how loud the other voices are. We do that as we come together in, in, over scripture every single week in church, but we do that again as we come over God's word again when we're by ourselves, when we, when we come to God in his word alone. We, we do that as we come to God in Bible studies. We do that as we literally have an issue, something in our lives that we're wrestling with, and we go, what do I do here? What is truth here? How do I get to that? And we look at God's word for that. We do that in worship. You know, when our worship leaders, um, when they kind of taught a few weeks ago on, 
on why we worship the way we do and, and, and why we emphasize the things that we do, one of the things that they all three said in their own way, but the same thing, was that we, we worship by singing truths about God that Scripture tells us are true, and there's incredible value in doing that, especially in situations where we don't feel like doing that. And I thought about that morning, how my experience as a person who struggled with things like anxiety and depression has been where for many years I've thought like worship on Sunday mornings is for all the happy people, right? That's, that's for happy people. That's where all the happy people come and they sing the songs and everybody kind of celebrates how happy everybody is and how good they feel and how great God's been. Yet what's crazy is that as I, as I wrestle through things like anxiety, wrestle through things like depression, wrestle with these lies that are taking over the very way that I view myself and my world and cause me to live in fight or flight when nothing is really actually going on that's attacking me or that's wrong. What I find is that I'm supposed to focus instead on other things that are true, that are more true. And so thousands of years before, psychologists and people were talking about things like cognitive behavioral therapy, People were writing in scripture about the need for us to speak these words and sing them to God. Because in doing so, we bring ourselves back. We bring our minds and our hearts back to what we know is true about God, even if it's not our experience right now. And I can say that it's been one of the most profoundly reshaping things in my own heart. Coming again and, and worshiping God again. Seeing how it's not just by learning information in his word, but actually worshiping him and singing these things about him that I may not feel totally connect with my experience right now. So we are transformed in our thinking by seeing what is true, going back to it again and again and again and bringing each other back to it again and again. And then he tells us why exactly we do this. He says this, that we will then be able to test and approve what God's will is. That the reason that we do these things is so that we can test and approve what God's will is. So we take this new information, this true way of seeing things, and we use it. It doesn't just change us one time, and then he says, and then you will go on thinking clearly forever. No. He describes an ongoing process in which we now test and approve everything. You know, people often think that, that faith is for people who don't want to think, people who can't figure things out who don't want to have answers to things and would rather just feel all these good feelings and turn their brain off. What Paul is talking about here and what we read throughout Scripture is that faith is for the people who say, I'm going to think about these things in a much deeper way than most people are ever willing to. I'm going to really ask these big questions and I'm going to really go, God, what is truth in this? And that is me testing and discerning, testing and approving. The word that, that's used here is testing and approving uh, of discerning is like when you, when you test something to see if it's valuable or not, right? 
you get the gold thing, you bite it, right, do the pirate test, right, and you go, nope, not valuable, nope, valuable, okay, I broke my teeth, no, that's, that's fake, right? That is testing and approving, testing and approving, each and everything. Is this really valuable? Is this really true? Is this really good? Or does it just seem that way? Does it just appear that way right now? Does it just feel that way to me? I certainly know I want it to be true in many cases. He said, our life is going to be us using this awareness of truth to do that again and again and again and again. And as we do that, he says, you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. You will not live your entire Christian life in a constant state of confusion and mystery and think that's what faith is. This is summed up so well by Peter when he writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What Peter is saying here is the same thing. We are to prepare our minds for action. Now here's, I love this. When when you translate this out, it's girding uh, your mind. You are to gird up your thoughts or your minds. All right, here we go. Girding your loins. That's where this comes from. Girding your loins was something that people did in biblical times. Men usually wore big, long, flowing, comfy robe dress things, you know. And, uh, you know, during the average, you know, casual time of day, then no big deal, never got in the way. But when you had to really do some hard work or you had to go into battle or fight someone, then what you did was you took your, your skirt dress thing, your tunic, and you wrapped it all around yourself like a big diaper and you put your, ro- your belt around that and you tied it up tight and now you have this girded up loins. And if you saw somebody with their loins girded, boy, you knew they were about to get down to work. There's pictures of it. You can look it up. I didn't want to put any up for you. (laughs) He's saying, Peter, that believers are going to have to gird up the loins of their minds in order to live the Christian life. You're going to think more than other people will probably be thinking about everything. You're going to be testing and approving things. Not so that you can be a perfect human being, You won't be a perfect human being. You'll probably be aware. You will definitely become aware of a lot of things that you feel incapable of doing. But that doesn't stop us from engaging in that hard work and doing that. And what he says that it gives us is the ability to be sober-minded. Sober-minded, which means free from outside influences. That's sober. You guys know what that means. Free from being under the influence, right? So, so he's saying that, that what it looks like to actually have the clouds start to part and gain what comes from this is that we're thinking clearly without any other influences clouding our ability to, to really do so. There are so many things that, that distort and cloud and influence our ability to think and reason and know what is true and real. There are thoughts that pollute our way of thinking. Thoughts that are, that are negative, that are condemning, lies, fear, doubt. These things that are not of God 
and they fill up our mind, they come into our mind often, and we make the mistake of sometimes even thinking that it's what God is telling us. When in reality, what we find when we look at his truth and his word is that that is not what his word says about us. That is not how he views us, and it is not the way that he chooses to, to treat us as his children. God is for us, scripture says. His kindness is what leads us to repentance. God is not trying to remind you of what a horrible failure of a person you are constantly so that you'll get your act together. It is his kindness that leads you to repentance. What he's rich in is mercy, and he wants to give it to you as often as you have a need for it. But these thoughts that come in and they pollute our way of thinking, they distort the way that we see ourselves in the world. There are idols. Like idols, what does idols have to do with how we think? Because when, when something in your life becomes an idol, then it, it distorts the way that you see everything else in your life. If money is your idol, that's going to distort the way that you see other things. If your desires and ambitions become an idol for you, that's going to change the way that you're able to objectively see reality and things around you. If your family and any other good thing becomes an idol to you, it will change the way that you see other things, and it will definitely change and distort the way that you see what God is trying to tell you, what God is telling you in his word. You'll run everything through the filter of your idols. Make sure that it never, they never get mentioned, they never get brought up, they never get challenged, which is not being sober-minded. And there's even ideologies, which are like ways of seeing the whole world, ways of seeing groups of people, ways of seeing ourselves, ideologies that, are affect, that, that affect when we, when we have them. When our politics, when our, when our views of what society should look like, when our addiction to, I don't know, buying stuff, the ideology of consumerism and materialism, when these things, we just accept that these things are just the way God wants everything to be. They will control the way that we're able to process what's even right or wrong. All of these are things that we can be under the influence of. And so Peter encourages believers in the church to do the hard work, to gird up their loins. And as Paul would say, to be transformed by the renewing of their mind. And in doing this, we'll be able to test and discern what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. One of the biggest ways that we grow in maturity is learning how to test and discern what is true of God. This is the thing that we want to teach others to do as well. It's the thing we want to teach people we disciple to do. We want to encourage our spouses and our closest friends to be doing. And we want to be reminders of what that looks like to them. It's the thing we want to teach our children to do, is to test and discern. What we're not supposed to do is say, that sounds too exhausting. So I'm just going to only be around Christian people and Christian stuff. And then I'm just going to trust that everything that happens is Christian and good. That's not the same thing. That's veneer much of the time. When we change the way that we think, says Paul here in the second verse of chapter 12 of Romans, when we change the way that we think, it changes the way that we live. This is the first step for us. To ask ourselves the question, what is the mold that I'm being pushed into as I live this life of mine in this culture, who I am here today? You know, where do I see and encounter God's truth? And am I looking at that? Maybe, maybe what are all of these other voices and things that might be drowning that out and just making it harder for me to see it and hear it? I need to take a break from. 
And um, can I go back to that again and again and again so that I can test and approve to discern what is good and what is not? This is what it looks like to take these steps of being a person living the Christian life. And we do all of it, all of it, because we are enabled to by the mercy of God, by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray.